Good morning, church. I am so excited for the opportunity to share with you this morning. Uh, My wife and I, as we near the end of our first month here, we didn't really know what to expect. We didn't really know what the transition would be like. We've driven through New Jersey, but we've never spent much time here outside of our two visits. So we didn't know what it was going to be like. But church, you have been so good to our family. We have felt so welcome. We have been so blessed to be here. Even just our short time here, we've enjoyed our time here. And so we're excited to be here. We're excited to be on this journey. It's been so much fun to already, just in the short amount of time, see the work that God is doing here, see the way that he is moving in and amongst the people of Colts Neck. And we are grateful that we have the chance to join you on that journey. Before we jump right into the main passage, I think it's important that we look at the context. I think it's important that we look at what Paul was leading up to, where he was coming to in this letter, so that we can better understand the portion of the text that we're going to be spending time with today. And so I want to give you a very broad, very simplified outline of the book, starting with the first three chapters. In in Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul really provides an explanation of the gospel. And sometimes I think we use these terms like gospel even, and it just becomes a part of our church ease, if you will, the language of the church. I had some students that I was working with one time, and they had pens and paper, and I said, hey, will you write down the answer to this question? What is the gospel? And they really struggled. They struggled to write out, hey, this is what it means. And I think the gospel really is the central tenet of our faith. And so just to share a short, quick explanation, the gospel is that we were dead. We were without hope. We were lost far away from God, and God being rich and mercy, being good to us, loving us, sent his son Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who was righteous and holy and did all that was right, and then he died the death that we deserved, taking our place on the cross, bearing the weight of our sin, and then after he died, three days later, he rose again, showing his power over death and the grave. You see, when I say the gospel, that is what I want us to think of. That's what I want to point back to is this picture of what Christ has done on our behalf. Perhaps even more succinctly, I've heard it phrased, the gospel is Jesus in my place. Us receiving the righteousness of Christ and him bearing the wrath of God on our behalf. That is the gospel. Paul explains that and all the good news that we receive, that we are co-heirs with Christ. Paul, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, lays that out there clearly. And I think he does that because Paul knows that as we look, as we gaze upon the goodness of our God, as we look at what he has done, that will change our hearts. That will transform our minds. It is in seeing Christ that we become more like Christ. And so we start with this explanation and then the back three chapters, the application of the gospel is really what Paul does in Ephesians 4 through 6. But he never really leaves the gospel, even in the application. He's constantly saying, look, you do this because of the gospel. It's the way our lives should look. Every aspect of our lives ought to point people to the gospel. It ought to be weaved into everything we do. So Paul here goes from explanation to application. And then even a little more in depth of the context in the back three chapters is that Paul works through relationships. 
relationships that we have. First, starting with our personal relationship with God and then working in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 with the marital and then moving into the children and parent relationship and then finally to kind of the employee-employer relationship. My dad uses this idea and I think it's very helpful. I think it's a great picture for us to help us visualize how we ought to order, how we ought to prioritize our lives. And at the center of these concentric circles that he uses, at the very center is, of course, our personal relationship with God. Everything that we do should be ordered around that relationship. Of course, until we love and know God rightly, we cannot rightly love anyone else. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. Our love towards others flows out of the relationship that we share with God. And then Paul moves in outward out of that circle. So it starts there, but then he moves outward into that marital relationship, right? The second most important relationship is your spouse. Your spouse deserves to be a priority in your life. And then he moves outward from your spouse to your family, to your parenting, to your children. It says, bring them up, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6, 4. Parents, you have a God-given responsibility to train your children, to lead your children, to pray for your children, that they would know and experience the love of God, that God would reveal himself to them. Those circles can't be broken or get misaligned. It starts with our personal relationship and moves to our marriage and then moves outward. You see, and each of these are impacted by the gospel. Paul shows that a godly marriage ought to point the whole world to the gospel and godly parenting ought to point our children to the gospel. Finally, just prior to that passage, he finishes with that Ephesians 5 through 9 where he kind of looks at what uh, the, the worker relationship should be. And again, even that relationship ought to be lived out in light of the gospel. All of it comes back to that. All of it comes back to what Christ has done and the resurrection. That's where it all begins and that's where it all ends. And it is with this context, with this relational prioritization that Paul moves into the section of Scripture that's so well known. This armor of God. Paul moves into uh, this passage that really helps us understand the war that is the Christian life. And I think sometimes we shy away from that terminology of war. Because war really is nasty and brutal and ugly. And I think for those of us who haven't physically experienced war, there's no question it's hard for us to even understand what that must be like. Yet, I don't think we should shy away because Paul uses armor. The Holy Spirit intended for this to be seen as a passage that we were to be at war. And I don't know of much more ugly than when we go unequipped and marriages fall apart and families fall apart and churches fall apart because they aren't equipped with the armor of God. As Christians in a world that is sinful, we have to constantly, constantly be at war. Listen to this example of our country at wartime. Uh, as Many of you know America officially entered World War II at the, uh, after the tragedy of Pearl Harbor. Some of you know veterans. In fact, I spoke with someone this week who has a father who's a World War II veteran. Some of you uh, have relatives and family that fought in that war. Maybe you've seen movies like Saving Private Ryan or Dunkirk that dramatize some of what happened there. 
Our country, when it was time to enter war, had already been supplying the allies, and yet our country was nowhere near prepared for what it was going to take to win the war. We weren't ready, and yet the people knew that they were willing to do whatever it took, that they were willing to get on board, that the nation was going to have to change. Listen to just a few of the ways that the country prepared. Millions of citizens planted victory gardens in order to grow their own food so that more could be sent overseas. Sugarcane was needed to produce gunpowder, dynamite, and other chemical products to satisfy the military's needs. Sugar was rationed to civilians. Other foods, including meat and coffee, were also rationed. Local rationing boards issued coupons to consumers so they could receive a limited supply. To help produce more ammunition, Americans saved household waste fat, which was used to make glycerin. Other household goods, including rags, paper, silk, and string, were also recycled for the war effort. Old cars, bed frames, radiators, pots, pipes were just some of the items gathered at metal scrap drives. They also collected rubber, tin, nylon, and paper. In 1940, President Roosevelt surprised Congress when he proposed the building of 50,000 aircraft a year. By 1940, with the nation at war, that number had doubled. You see, when it was time for war, when it was time for the nation to gear up, when it meant life or death, the nation didn't continue in the same pattern. They knew we can't just continue to go about our business. We can't just continue to act as if all is normal. The entirety of the nation was required to contribute to the effort. It needed to be an all-in, all-hands-on-deck effort to say we are going to war and we're not going to lose. Just imagine if the country had not done that, if people had gone about their daily business, if people hadn't cared, just imagine how different the world might look today. I titled the sermon today, Wartime, because here's the truth. Spiritually, as long as we are on this side of heaven, we are not in peacetime. We are at war. You see, while war for America is brutal and nasty and means physical life or death, spiritual war means eternal life or death. We can't be lazy. We have to act like we are men and women who know that there is a war raging on around us because if we fail to, we will continue to seed ground. For too long, the American church has sat comfortably on the sidelines. I mean, it doesn't take very much looking around to see that the American church has lost ground. And I'm not really even talking about the social or the political problems of today, though those are byproducts of this issue. I think probably for the last several decades, maybe even the last century, the American church has failed to fight for its families. It's failed to fight for its marriages. It's failed to fight for its churches. It's failed to fight for its communities and its neighbors. Unfortunately, too often, we've worshipped the blessings of our God rather than the gracious God who gives them so freely. We have to fight because our brothers and sisters in Christ, because our spouses, because our children, because our own hearts are constantly and regularly under attack. But instead of fighting with all that we have, instead of investing every resource we have into the effort, we are far too often satisfied. We are far too often pleased. We are unwilling to lay all of it down, to put it all on the line in the name of Christ. Instead of being captured by the majesty and the beauty of our God. Instead of being hungry 
for his glory. Instead of having hearts that desire all that he has to offer, all the beauty of what he gives, we become enraptured with the flavor of the week that the world gives to us. And we let the world turn our eyes from what our focus ought to be on to that which it offers. Oh, church, your wealth, your status, your possessions are not as important. Oh, why are we missing the one whom we ought to be worshiping? So as we turn to the text here this morning, as we look at this focal text, I'd like for you to approach it with this mentality. The mentality that we are at war. Because as the Holy Spirit was inspiring these words, that is what it meant. So I hope you will listen closely, look closely at what God has to say to you. Would you read with me here? Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 10 and read through verse 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This text breaks down, uh, or I'm going to break it down into three sections pretty cleanly here. Uh, and it really gives us this battle plan for our fight. What we need to go into the fight. First, Paul starts by pointing out that we need to be strong in the Lord. Strong in the Lord. I love, uh, I love the story of an old seminary professor. He would, on the first day of class, really before class, he would send out a message to all of his students, everybody who had enrolled. And he would say, hey, uh, we've got this assignment, this task that... I need you all to meet me at the graveyard. On the very first day of class, we're all going to gather up, we're going to go together, and we're going to go to the graveyard. And I've got a task for you. And when we get out there, I'm going to give you this task. And if you can complete this task, then good news. You get an A, you don't have to come back to the class, you're set for the semester. So they would all go out, and the students would gather one morning here at the graveyard, and the professor would come out, and he would say, all right, guys, here's the task. Here's the one thing I want you to do. Go and raise someone from the dead. <laughs> go get somebody. You got plenty of people here. Just go get one. I don't need all of them. Just bring me one. And so, of course, the students would go and they would call people to rise from the dead. And uh, nobody ever rose. You guessed it. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. They did not have the power to raise someone from the dead. Church, we're insufficient on our own. We are incapable. The Great Commission, Jesus, at the end of his time here on earth, left his disciples with a call. He said, go and make disciples. That is a call to go and bring people from death to life. We can't do it. We're inadequate. I'm insufficient. I can't do that. But God is sufficient. And God is is capable, and he can do it. Ephesians 1, using the context of the book, says that it is the power of God that raised Christ from the dead. It's that very same power that dwells within us that overcomes our insufficiencies, that overcomes our weaknesses and inadequacies. Paul then moves into what is kind of the first main point. If you're a note taker here, I'm going to give you some main points, some main ideas to write down. I think the main idea here in verses 11 and 12 of this text that Paul wants to share with us is to know your enemy. Know your enemy. In verses 11 and 12, Paul clearly shows us 
the enemy, right? He identifies what we have to be ready to fight against. First, by explaining what is not our enemy. Who our enemy is not, which is that we are not to be in a fight against flesh and blood. Oh, what an easy temptation and trap that is to fall into. It's such an easy trap. But Paul makes it clear that's not our fight. Scripture time and time again makes it clear our fight is not against other people. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God desires that all people should reach repentance. Our war, our battle, our fight is not against flesh and blood. I really enjoy sports, and I really enjoy documentaries. So if there's a sports documentary, we're in a good place. I'm going to watch it. We're going to check it out. Particularly, being from North Carolina, we're Panthers fans. My wife and I and my family, although Eli's wavering a little bit. We've got some pastors who like the Giants, and so he's starting to think a little. We've got to work on him. So we were watching this documentary on the Panther season. We thought it was cool that we were going to get to see this. And one of the episodes featured a linebacker, probably some of you know him, Luke Keekley, pretty good linebacker. And they were featuring him and they were going through and they were trying to show, hey, what, what, um, what makes him special? Why is he particularly good? Why does he stand out from the crowd? Why does he seem to know more than the rest of the guys? And what they showed is that he constantly was in the film room. I mean, this guy watched video of the team that they were going to be playing against all the time. I mean, he did it in his bed at home even. He was constantly learning, hey, if the quarterback says this, then that means the run play is going to go this way. Or if they line up in this formation, then this is the play that they're going to run. And so he knew exactly what the defense, he knew his enemy well. Well, what if one Sunday Luke Keekley came rushing out of the tunnel and he had studied all week and he was ready for the Philadelphia Eagles, and he had just, he was pumped, and he came out, and as he looked across the field, there was the San Francisco 49ers. <laughs> Whew, he's just a trouble. <clears throat> I originally made that joke where he looked across the field and he saw the New York Giants, <laughs> and then I figured, well, he probably doesn't even need to watch tape for them. <laughs> sorry, yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I take it back, I take it back. <laughs> Here's the point, church. Here's the point. When you are preparing for your enemy and you're preparing for the wrong enemy, you're going to lose. You know, it would be silly, right? We would look at Luke Kuechly and we'd say, man, that, that's, that's silly. There's no way he would prepare for the wrong enemy. There's, mm. You know, he would have other players on his team who would be saying, Luke, man, why are you watching video of the Eagles? We're playing the 49ers this week. You know, you got to get the 49er video on. Or he would have coaches who would come up to him and say, Luke, that's the wrong enemy. Luke, that's the wrong opponent. You don't need to prepare for them. That would be silly. And yet, how often do we find ourselves engaged in a battle against the wrong enemy? It's a shame. It's sad. It's unfortunate. It's time for us to quit fighting against our spouses. It's time for us to quit fighting against our kids and against our coworkers. It's especially time for us to stop fighting the angry guy on Facebook who seems to think everybody else needs to know what he has to say. <laughs> right? Our battle isn't against 
flesh and blood. They aren't the enemy. Maybe going back to maybe the ultimate basic, a passage that we all learn early on will make it even clearer. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We are so quick to point out the flaws in others. We're so quick to complain about what someone else did, or to gossip about them, or to complain about them, or attack them on social media, or to, to attack them in the political sphere. The internet is filled with articles proclaiming, hey, that person was crushed, or this person was destroyed, or this person was demolished, and they use terms like that because they know that's what draws the clicks. People want to see those people. People want to see people torn down. But Paul says our flight isn't with flesh and blood, but it's against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We should be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world. Not looking to put up some imaginary points in our mind. Not looking to make sure, hey, I got one. Oh, one to zero. I'm good. You see, the scoreboard that we keep, the bitterness that we harbor, the revenge we crave, that's all a result of our sin nature. The truth is, our heart is the enemy. Our sin-stained, sin-deformed heart is the enemy. If Satan can make you look out and look at the world and think they are the enemy, then he is winning. He's keeping you off the real battlefield and he's forcing you to fight the very one that God loves. We have to quit fighting our brother and sister in Christ. Quit fighting the man or the woman who needs Jesus. Church, we would be those people were it not for the grace and the goodness of our God. They need him. Sun Tzu, an ancient Chinese general and strategist, wrote the book, The Art of War. You may have heard of it. He wrote this about the way that we ought to approach war. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. With all of the impeachment hearings happening right now in Washington, I feel like it is just so evident how polarized our nation is, how much division and divisiveness there is. And yet this is still true. Democrats nor Republicans are our enemies. Neither Adam Schiff nor Donald Trump nor Nancy Pelosi nor Mitch McConnell is our enemy. Put any political leader you want there. Political opponents, your co-workers, those that you disagree with, those that you don't see eye to eye with, your family, they are not the enemy. And they don't need you to rage against them. Church, they need you to pray for them. Amen. Scripture makes it clear that people aren't the enemy. It doesn't matter what any person or pundit or politician says. It matters what Scripture says. Scripture makes it clear that our hearts are deceptive. That Satan is working against us. When we understand this, that the enemy is the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, when we understand who we are fighting against, what we are fighting against, then we can move and begin to win and fight those battles. So Paul moves from knowing your enemy to get ready for war. Get ready for war. 
Look with me at verses 13 through 17 here at the actual armor of God. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. There's a lot in these five verses, no question. Plenty that you could do an entire series of sermons. But here I'm going to try and get through these five verses here in just a portion of this sermon. So stay with me as we move very briefly through all of this. First, notice that verse 13 says that if you want to stand firm, you have to take up the whole armor. Our nation spends incredible amounts of money on our military to make sure that they're well-equipped that they have the right armor, the right gear, the things that they need to be successful. We put a lot of financial money and wealth into making sure that that's the case. The good news for us, the price for our armor has already been paid. And so we have been given the armor that we need to be equipped with to be successful. And Paul starts with the belt of truth. Using the context of the book, Paul would have known this is the letter written to the church at Ephesus. They would have already come through the whole letter to get here to the end. And so using the context of the book to inform the armor, look at chapter 4 of Ephesians, verses 20 and 21. It says, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. The belt of truth, the truth is in Jesus, we must come back to Jesus. Jesus is the foundation for the rest of the armor. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth is that we must focus on Jesus. Put on the belt of truth. Secondly, Paul points out the breastplate of righteousness. Again, if you were to look back at Ephesians 4, verse 24 this time, it says, put on, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul then moves on and says, therefore, in verse 25, and he lays out what that new self should look like. He gives a very practical understanding of, okay, if you're going to live a righteous life, these aspects are what it looks like. This is what it looks like to be righteous. So if you're like right now beside of your Bible there, if you want to know what the breastplate of righteousness should look like, it's Ephesians chapter 4, 25 to 32. That's the picture. That's what Paul expects. Next, Paul mentions the shoes of gospel peace. Tony Morita is a pastor, and he says this about the gospel shoes of peace. Historians tell us that the Roman soldiers were issued great footwear. Their studded half boots enabled them to travel great distances. They covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time, pursuing the enemy into every nook and cranny. They went into hard places. We need to go to every nook and cranny also as we take the gospel to faraway places, even hard places. We are to be ready with the gospel, no matter the cost, no matter the day, no matter the time, always at peace, hoping to help others come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Fourth, we are to carry the shield of faith. Again, the context informs the armor. Paul in Ephesians 2.8 says that we are saved by grace through faith. When Satan attacks, it is this faith, this belief in the work and the promises of God 
that defends us from the arrows of the evil one. We have faith in what Christ has done. And as we move forward defending ourselves with that faith, we are better able to put to use the gospel shoes of peace. Paul then talks about the helmet of salvation. Our minds should be protected by the knowledge that we are saved. For those of us here who have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, we don't have to worry what would happen should our account be required. Should there be a necessary need for our actions to be accounted for, Christ has covered and done the work. He has paid for our sins. He has given us His righteousness. Scripture says that our minds should dwell on that which is noble and good. And I can think of nothing better than our salvation. We, our minds, are to be protected by that salvation. Dwell on that. Finally, Paul comes at last to the sword of the Spirit. And this is often noted as the only offensive weapon. And interestingly here, Paul uses a Greek word that actually refers to the spoken word of God. He's saying that the sword of the Spirit is an offensive weapon in which we use by sharing the gospel with others, by going out and actively proclaiming the good news, by proclaiming the word of God to others. And that message is empowered by the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. I think the biggest takeaway, the most clear thing about this armor, is just how intertwined the gospel is with each piece. The belt of truth is about Jesus because he is truth. The breastplate of righteousness is given to us because Christ was righteous when none of us could be, when all of us fell short. Christ lived a righteous life. The gospel shoes of peace are worn so that we can share the gospel with others. The shield of faith is recognition. We can do nothing to earn salvation. The helmet of salvation reminds us to dwell on that great gift that we have been given through Christ. And the sword of the Spirit is given when we are rescued from our sins. It all comes back to Christ. It all comes back to the good news. J.D. Greer, he's a pastor out of the Raleigh, North Carolina area, said this. The gospel, however, is not just the diving board off of which we jump into the pool of Christianity. It is the pool itself. It is not only the way we begin in Christ, it is the way we grow in Christ. This leads to kind of this third and final point here. So it's know your enemy, get ready for war, and then go to war. Go to war. Look at verses 18 through 20. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. And also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. It would be easy to skip over this part. It would be easy to end with that great message of the armor of God. And yet I think Paul here is saying, once you have put on the armor, you are to be praying at all times. This is what you are to be about. This is what you are to be doing. Oswald Chambers, the author of the classic My Utmost for His Highest, said this about prayer. Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. The worst possible thing we could do is fail to utilize the armor we have been given. See, Paul said that he was to pray and that he wanted to proclaim boldly the mystery of the gospel. When we fail to pray and proclaim boldly the mystery of gospel, we aren't using the tools that we have been given. 
when we fail to use it, we are looking the other way. We're looking the other way while the world, and I really feel like the world almost impersonalizes it a little bit. Maybe it's better to say we're looking the other way while our families, while our coworkers, while our neighbors are headed to an eternity in hell. We cannot inconvenience ourselves to fight the war that the king has called us to. We're too worried about what we have. Church, your status, your prestige, your job, your wealth, none of them are worth the eternity of a soul. It's more important than what we have. Think about it in these terms, and this analogy, no question, is overused. And I'm going to try and make it a little more personal. Imagine someone has the cure for cancer. We would all say, they need to share that, right? No, unquestionably. What if someone had the cure for cancer and their child had cancer? Or they had a coworker who had cancer? Wouldn't a parent do whatever it took to make sure, hey, I'm doing everything I can to make sure. I'm going to be as intentional as I possibly can to make sure that you get this. Cancer isn't an adequate analogy because sin is far worse far more dangerous. It's going to have far more longer lasting, reaching impact than cancer ever could. Sin has eternal consequences for the world around us. We can't make excuses for why we can't get in this war, for why we can't be praying, why we can't be involved, why we can't go to discipleship, why we can't be serving in our churches, why we can't be leading our families, why we're too busy to be able to do things. Church, too often I've made those excuses. I'm so grateful that Jesus didn't make those excuses when it was time to win my soul. Church, it's time to put on the armor of God and go to war. Dads, go to war for your families. Moms, go to war for your kids. Grandparents, go to war for your grandparents. Seniors, go to war for the young families and the individuals in this church that need your prayer. Coworkers, go to war for your coworkers. Coltsneck, go to war for your neighbors. Church, go to war for your community. Don't let the time slip by. We must be at war. We cannot settle for mediocrity. John Owen said it like this. If you're not killing sin, sin is killing you. How often have we let time slip us by? Weeks, days, months, years where we've lived lives of insignificance, lives that don't matter. Church, I hope, I pray that you're committed to fighting for what matters. Fix your eyes on the goodness of the gospel. Don't let your focus stray from who God is and what He has done and what He offers. God offers far more than anything that this world can put before us. And as you fix your eyes on Him, go forth and live in confidence that you are a child of the king. I want to end this on this note of encouragement. Church, as sons and daughters of the king, and that means we get to go out with the blessing of the king, with the protection of the king, with the armor of the king, with the support and the backing and the love of the king. You see, we have a king who is reigning and is in control and has already been victorious over sin and death. 
We don't have to be afraid of what this world can do to us. We serve a good and loving God. We must not fear the world. It's wartime, and it's time that we get engaged with the war that our King is calling us to fight. Church, would you pray with me this morning? Father, as I think even about my own life, as I was reading this text and preparing, God, I, God, I am so sorry for the times that I have wasted, for the times I haven't been intentional. Father, I pray that I would constantly be at war, engaged, ready to do whatever you call me to do. And Father, as I turn this prayer outward on the people of Colts Neck, oh God, I pray that they would engage in this war that they would engage for the lives of those around them. Father, how often do we walk by those who are spiritually dead? How often do we fight against those who need You? Oh, Father, soften our hearts. Give us hearts that are like Yours, eyes that are like Yours, so that we may see the world like You see it that we may love the world like You love it. Father, soften the hearts of those who need You so that as this church engages in combat, as we go to war in the confidence that You're in control, that hearts will be ready to hear, that lives will be changed. Oh God, that we would be overjoyed at the sight of people moving from death to life. Oh, Father, thank You for Your goodness. Thank You that we are co-heirs with Christ, sons and daughters of the King. Father, we love You. In Your name I pray. Amen.